Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 20th, 2020, and my guest is author Martin Gurry. He is a former CIA analyst and the author of The Revolt of the Public. Martin, welcome to Econ Talk. Great to be here. Revolt of the Public was first published in 2014, which seems about 100 years ago. Uh, you summarize the central idea as, quote, the information technologies of the 21st century have enabled the public composed of amateurs, people from nowhere, to break the power of the political hierarchies of the industrial age. Uh, expand how you came to see that and uh, what that means exactly. Well, as you say, I, I was uh, an analyst in CIA. I probably had the least glamorous job there. I wasn't, didn't have my double license to kill or the, <laughs> or the beautiful girls. I was a, an analyst of global media. And for the earliest part of my career, that was very straightforward. I, there was a trickle of open information and it was uh, every country had its equivalent of a New York Times, uh, a, a source that set the agenda. So if the president wanted to know how his policies were playing in France, you went to Le Monde, you went to Le Figaro, just literally two newspapers. Then things went haywire. Just the world turned upside down. Um, a digital earthquake, epicenter, say, somewhere between Mountain View and Palo Alto, uh, generated this tsunami of information that just swept over the world. Um, and uh, tsunami, I think, is a good word. There no, uh, numbers can be boring, but, but sometimes it can be illustrative. Um, some very clever people from Berkeley tried to measure how the information uh, of the world had developed, and they came up with the fact that in the year 2001, as you just tip into this era, uh, that year produced double the amount of information of all previous human history, uh, going back to the cave paintings and the dawn of, history, uh, the dawn of uh, culture. So um, 2002 doubled 2001. Uh, so if you chart that, you do get something that looks like a gigantic wave. Uh, I call it a tsunami. Now... For those of us who worked in CIA, I was like, now what the heck do we do with this enormous amount of information? Where do we get our stuff? But what really mattered was the effect of the information in uh, different nations of the world. We could see as the tsunami swept across the world at different speeds in different countries, tremendously increased levels of um, social and political turbulence. Uh, and, and, um, and the question was why? So that was the seed of the book. Uh, after I left government, it, 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 the question that haunted me was the one that my CIA masters always asked, which was like, so what? Uh, okay, so the people get, uh, start to write bad things about government in Egypt, so what? They get, what are they going to do when the cops come? Hit them with their laptops? That was a, the internal CIA joke. Are they going to hit them with their laptops? Then you had the year 2001. And the year 2001 was... You mean 2011. I'm sorry, 2011. Thank you. 
the year 2011. 2011 is a year I call um, the phase change year, where it really showed that information, the effect of this this tide of information could could affect power. And you had, of course, the um, uh, Arab Spring in the Middle East, uh, probably misnamed. You had the indignados in Spain. You had uh, a revolt called the uh, Tent People Revolt or a Social Justice Revolt in Israel. You had the occupiers here in the United States. Uh, and and um, these all had similar origins. So the question now was, what was going on? What 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 caused these uh, eruptions from below? And to my thinking, it has to do with the kinds of institutions that we have inherited from the 20th century, from the industrial age. They're all, you know, I don't know how many people are aware of um, Frederick Taylor. He's sort of a forgotten figure in history. But he was sort of the prophet of industrialism and scientific management. And if you read his writings, everything happens from the top down. The, the, the top manager figures everything that's going to happen, all the tools that you need. And um, essentially what everybody, every layer below you, and there are many, many layers below you, uh, is going to do. Everything's scripted. Well, our institutions, which we think or tend to think were created in the 18th century by the founders, in fact, are the product of the industrial age and of political Taylorism, in essence. Uh, And one of the things that they required to maintain their authority, and they have had in their day a great deal of authority, they believe in expertise, they believe in science, Uh, one of the things that the, the, the primary foundation was a monopoly over information and their domains. Uh, so that, you know, if you're uh, uh, in government, you have uh, control over a certain set of uh, government information. If you're in politics, you and the media, you as a politicians and the media share a certain set of information that nobody else had access to in the, um, in the 20th century. Nobody talked back. Um, And what that tsunami has done was destroy that monopoly. In brief, it has destroyed that monopoly. And it turns out these institutions can't seem to function without that and um, have lost their authority. So where before there was a sort of uh, instinctive reliance, the president says something in the age of JFK, somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of Americans trusted the government. Today, if you're the president... You inst- you're instinctively distrusted. Somewhere between 20 and 30% today trust the presidency of the federal government. So uh, I, I think it has been a, uh, um, a crisis that these institutions have, have uh, lapsed into. And I think the elites that manage and inhabit these institutions have reacted pretty badly in the sense of not really being aware of what's happening and trying to pretend that somehow the 20th century is still amongst us and uh, that the internet and the web and the digital universe has never exploded around them. Yeah, I think uh, what, I, what I credit your insight with doing, and again, it's important to remember that this is, this is an insight that came a long time ago, 2014, and you know, we'll talk, I expect, about what has changed since you first came up with this idea. But I think when people first thought about this information revolution, they funded, they meaning me too, we fundamentally misunderstood it. I think we thought it was going to usher in this great flourishing of human knowledge, which it has, uh, which is a glorious thing. Uh, 
we realized with the Arab Spring that it allowed networks of individuals to coordinate in ways that they struggled to before. But we missed the part that you saw. I think most of us missed it. Maybe most, maybe almost all of us missed it. The part that you saw was that the tsunami, which normally would we would say, well, now people are going to have trouble figuring out where to find stuff because there's just so much of it. And then we would have, I would have responded, well, things will come along to help people filter it. That's what markets do. That's what emergent order does. It, you know, Google doesn't just give you a random assortment of websites of that. Uh, doubled information in, say, 2002. Whenever Google came along, I don't even remember now. It's a long time ago. But search engines came along to help us filter it. Uh, we, we came to trust certain websites for our information. Maybe they weren't the New York Times. Some of them still were, but are the equivalent. But your insight, which I think is is profound, is that it unmoored the credibility of the previous institutions, the media, the government, universities, the intellectual elites, uh, it empowered people to find alternatives. Uh, it's not obvious, though, that that should have led to this um, strange um, collapse of authority at the centralized or elite level. What do you think explains that? Why did just the perfusion the tsunami-like aspect of it lead to such a dismantling of authority and credibility and trust? I mean, my take on that is the institutions and the elites, uh, politicians, uh, journalists, academics um, of the industrial age had a great deal of confidence in in the assertions that they made. They, They spoke... Uh, as scientists or as social scientists, uh, as experts, and they they made uh, tremendous predictions. They claimed a lot of control over the economy, for example, over um, uh, the natural environment. They they asserted certain claims that could only be uh, sustained if the rest of us really didn't know the full picture. And I think what that tsunami has done is stripped them naked. I mean, it, they are still experts. They still do know a great deal, but they are wrong a lot. And, it, you know, if you're an economist, I point you to the year 2008, where pretty much everybody tried to explain the fact that there was no conspiracy or no crime by saying we never saw it coming and we have no idea what it was. Okay, that was a pretty generic excuse given for why that happened. Which should have ended the authority of economists forever, but it didn't. We're good for other things too, but your point is is that that was a hammer blow to the credibility Uh, of economists uh, in some dimension. I'm here to tell you, Russell, that in my opinion, it did end. (laughs) (laughs) It did end the authority of economists forever. I think right now being an expert gets you, just as uh, if you're not JFK, you're Trump or Obama, uh, instead of getting the trust that a JFK would have uh, evinced from you simply because he was president, not because of his person, uh, you get distrust simply because he's president. And I think uh, as an economist, if you say, well, I'm an expert economist, you are going to generate a lot of distrust in your audience simply by that fact. Well, the the example used in the book is very powerful, of uh, which, of course, a lot of us paid attention to at the time. And besides a lot of us, a lot of everyday people, not professional economists, paid attention that when the stimulus package was passed, 
it was forecast that without the stimulus package, unemployment could get as high as whatever it was, 9%. 9% yeah. And it turned out with the package, it yeah. got to 10 and a half. Yeah. Um, now, with the benefit of hindsight, everyone is saying, oh, it was just too small. At the time, a lot of people didn't say that. They said it was, quote, I have a vivid memory of, of Alan Blinder, very respected Keynesian economist saying it's just the right size. Well, probably wasn't or it wasn't relevant. We, we don't really even know that. We can't test it. Uh, but but that was a an example of where uh, credibility was, was lost and trust was lost uh, if it was there in the first place. But I think it's much deeper than that. Obviously, uh, you know, you give the example of Walter Cronkite. Yes. Uh, Dan Rather would be another example yes. that someone who lost credibility, putting forward a story about George Bush that in years past, we just would have said, well, I guess he's right. Instead, an army of amateurs uncovered that that was a story was a mis- was flawed. Uh, there's so many examples like that. That one, that one is actually, I think, telling in the it, it, um, the way that the institutions, the, the, the elites, responded to the fact that they had been cut out. Because that's the famous New York Times headline that I have framed somewhere, fake but accurate. In other words, the story had been a fake but it was telling a truth, you know? So it's like some greater truth that we're trying to tell you people down there at the bottom of the pyramid, and you're kind of bothering us with the details of what actually happened. Yeah. And, and I think uh, we've come a long way since then. At that point, it was like, hmm, I mean, Dan Rather can make a mistake, I think a lot yes. of people thought. Uh, now we're in a world where uh, journalists are, in, in my view, nakedly partisan in a way that would have been unimaginable uh, in 2014, yeah. 2005, 2001. Agreed. I mean, at the um, 2016 elections, I think, following the lead of the New York Times, which very consciously, I think I had a June or July article, I remember it, uh, where they said, you have to cover a man like Trump differently. He's dangerous, as a word that was used. And I think New York Times sets the tone for American journalism, and everybody follows suit. Now, we had Yuval Levin on the program recently. That episode hasn't aired. Um, but in his book, A Time to Build, uh, which is ironically titled relative to your book, which is <laughs> your book's about the urge of the public to tear down institutions. Yuval's very, uh, I think, cognizant of that. But he, he's urging us to build. We'll you know, eventually get to the idea of what we might do about the world we're living in if we, if we have time. But in that book, what, what Yuval suggests is that institutions have lost – their credibility because so many of the players within them and and even the the ones who so-called run those institutions to the extent they are top-down, many of them are not top-down. The, the media is not top-down within an organization. You have an editor or a producer or director of a news station. But within those organizations that uh, – within those institutions that are not top-down in the, in the generic general – excuse me, general sense, people no longer – conform to the norms that used to exist. Those norms have been destroyed or they're just not enforced anymore. And as a result, people see their role in these institutions very differently than they used to. What what they used to see is, oh, I have to seek the truth or I have to, in the case of a university, I have to educate the next generation or in the case of the politician, I have to seek out the public good. Now, we know in reality, these actual this is a, a bit of a fantasy. There was always corruption. There's always people who free ride on an institution and seek out their own betterment, uh, taking advantage of the platform that they're in. But Levin's point is that 
the overwhelming norm now is seek your own well-being and uh, the institution is not so important. He's, he claims that they are – instead of being formative, they are performative. They're a place where the individual players perform to acquire followers Twitter, you know, on Twitter, Facebook, etc. Um, what's your reaction to that? Uh, I, I completely agree. I completely agree with that. Um, that is certainly how the public perceives the elites. Um, I, I I don't like to get you know. I'm not a revolutionary. I don't want to uh, put the arist- hang the aristocrats from the lampposts. But I, I have thought very deeply about our elite class, and I mean that in politics, but also in, as you say in academia in the media, uh, in the entertainment, in the arts. The professions, we yeah. also have this phenomenon among doctors, lawyers, etc. Exactly. All top to bottom. And it just seems to me that the qualities, and I think it's because the landscape has changed so, so, so massively, but the qualities that one would expect, I mean, what do you expect of an elite, Russ? You expect... Elite is not a, an insulting word. Elite means you're the best. So you, there's something about you that is admirable. In a healthy environment, and this is you know, Spanish philosopher Jose Ortega said, preach this. Uh, in, a, in a healthy environment, you look at the people at the top and you go, they embody a way of life that I in my own way would like to you know, emulate. And uh, so you look at somebody like George Washington, everybody was taught from almost even in my generation, many, many years ago, that he was like the embodiment of honesty, right? That he was, the, 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 I would not tell a lie. And uh, you would look at somebody like Thomas Edison, uh, who today would be treated, I, I, I watched, I watched uh, Young Edison, uh, a movie from the 30s, I believe, or maybe the early 40s. And then I watched uh, Social Network right afterwards, you know? <laughs> and both of those guys were pistols, all right? I mean, but, uh, Edison was a pistol, Zuckerberg is a pistol. But in the 30s movie, he's treated as somebody to emulate and yeah, admire. Yeah, in the Social Network, Zuckerberg is treated like a jerk, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Both were probably both things, but it all depends on what you want to look at. And I think the public right now looks at the fact that these, these elites seem to be totally self-serving, seem to be very distant, from, seem to exist to get away from them. The point of rising in the pyramid is not to achieve something good, to pursue the national interest, for example. It's to get rid of you, the public. But again, don't you think there's some sense in which we fooled ourselves before to, you know, that our presidents of the past, which were certainly viewed much less cynically, our athletes, you know, there was a famous uh, uh, memoir, Ball Four, written by Jim Bouton, a baseball player, where he Reddit. peeled back the curtain from sports players who were, we had this idealized version. Is some of this just this uh, natural cynicism that arises from? I guess you could argue it's just more information that we didn't have access to before. But there was a code that sports writers didn't reveal the behavior of athletes uh, off, outside the playing field or of presidents in the case of, of, of the media. And now every, every emperor is naked, you could argue. And I'm not sure how much of that has to do with the digital age. It's a, it's a trend that started well before it. Well, I think it has very much to do with the digital age because, yes, the, the, the trend to negativity started before – uh, the big tsunami, it, it, which was uh, probably unfortunate because it was a prevalent mood when that tsunami hit. And so it just kind of compounded it. Yeah. 
But I mean, it, it uh, that that phenomenon you're talking about, um, it, it's kind of interesting that different countries are in different places in that progression. Now, if you look at France, uh, France just had a um, a scandal because part of what happens. Is, I mean, I, I call this elite class the Harvey Weinstein elites because they have this sort of strange um, uh, way of living that seems so un- unusual and bizarre to an ordinary person. Um, and the, the candidate from the, the ruling party, on Marche in, in, in France, that was running for mayor of Paris, has had a sex scandal, basically a sex video that went public, right? Now, in France, here, of course, he would walk the walk of shame and, and apologize. In France, there is outrage, they, they still believe that we should never even t- be talking about this. And the man who released the tape and, uh, on the web, because that's what happens now, uh, has been arrested. So that's a complicated example because there's a privacy issue there, and some could argue. I think the more interesting case would be something like, say, the Gulf of Tonkin with LBJ where, or the weapons of mass destruction, where a story, a narrative that came out of the power of, of, of Washington, D.C., turned out to be either a lie or simply an error uh, or both. And it's a um, something going back to the 60s changed in America and, and not just in America, around the world about how we view uh, the people that we used to admire, heroes, at, you know, our idols and so on. Yeah, I agree. But I, I disagree that um – there was a privacy issue. I'm sorry. The reality of the world, that's, that's an elite thought. Uh, the, <laughs> the reality of the world is if you make a naked video of yourself with a woman, it's going to get out. And you have, if, you, if you're dreaming about privacy, you're, you're dreaming that you're living in the 20th well, century. There's some different rules. I, I agree. And he was campaigning on family values, which yeah, I guess. Another, yeah, another challenge. Yeah. I'm going to go back to 2011 when the events that, mm-hmm. that you write about really provoked your thinking. Uh, we saw a set of, you might call them uprisings, in Egypt, in Spain, and in Israel uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, what people thought were going, was going to happen in their, from those kind of uprisings didn't really much happen. You, we also mentioned Occupy Wall Street. Uh, in fact, you could argue that to some extent, as Yuval Levin talks about it, they were theater. They, they were a form of Entertainment's too strong a word, but they, they weren't action. They were simply a display on the part of the participants. Now, Egypt was very different. Egypt led to a, the fall of a long 30-year dictator who shocked people, and we thought, oh, this is the first domino. It's almost the last domino. So talk about what you saw in 2011 that, that, that provoked you to think about information as the, as the stimulus to these changes and why they turned out ultimately to be much smaller, at least on the surface, than, than it than met the eye. A major difference in the age of the tsunami when you have these revolts, these revolts of the public, from what I experienced when I was a younger man, is that um, the public avoids organization, disdains ideology, has no interest in programs. And in fact, there, if you look at what the public is, that's probably an important thing to get down to the table. Um, I grew up in the era of mass 
media when there was a mass audience and I was part of that mass. And to me, it was always kind of like a gigantic mirror, which all of us in America would see ourselves in there. We knew that everybody else was there too. That mirror has fallen and shattered. And the public now inhabits the broken pieces on the floor. Uh, there is no real public. There are many. Uh, there's just saying publics sounds stupid. So, so I keep talking about the public, but understand many. And many and mutually hostile. So how do you get people to essentially sacrifice their lives in a place like Tahrir Square uh, on behalf of uh, an anti-Mubarak uh, protest? How do you get people in, uh, in Tel Aviv, and there are hundreds of thousands, to protest uh, for social justice, they thought? Well, you basically focus on what you're against. You, you focus laser-like on what you're against, and you're against the status quo. And once the status quo turns to you and says, you got me, I'm ready to negotiate, what do you want? Silence, because the public has no organization, it has no uh, ideology, it has no programs, no leadership. So the public can only, I think um, somebody called it a tactical freeze. I forget who it was who said that. Once you start these protests, whatever you're protesting, that's what you're stuck on, all right? Um, I'll remember who said that, but that's not original with me. Um, and and uh, so you, in the end, have a situation in Egypt, for example, where um, the protesters managed to engineer the overthrow of, of Mubarak. I think really the army stepped in and said, you got to go, old man. Um, but in the end, uh, the landscape, once that happened, nothing because there was no program, there was some assumption of democracy was going to happen. So two big institutions, the Egyptian military and uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, fought it out for the next five years or so. So it was the opposite of what the, 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 the crowd in Tahrir Square, the, the protesters, had intended. I just have to mention, as it comes to mind as you're talking, uh, we're, I think we're both old enough to remember 1968 in, in Czechoslovakia. Uh, certainly Tiananmen Square in China, where there were mass movements really before the digital era, obviously. There were revolutions before the digital era. These era, these are of a different nature, though. And, and what I take you to be saying is that they are uh, incoherent. And I don't mean that has a negative, a pejorative sense that, that isn't, shouldn't be there. It's that nothing coheres. It, it just, it's just a, a frustration that's, that's coming. And therefore... There's nothing to replace that, the status quo, necessarily, even when it's successful. Yeah, Ortega would call them invertebrate. You know, they, they have no backbone that holds them up uh, against the institutions. Yeah, I get asked a lot, well, what about 1968 and all those protests? And alas, I was a young man in those days, I'm giving myself away. Um, and my memory was those radical groups were tiny little hierarchies. They pretended that they were all brotherhood, they were all equal, but there was always a little group of people who, who organized the demonstrations. I actually partook of several of them. Uh, there was always a little group, and the, the violent people, you know, like the, 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 the weathermen, 
uh, were exceedingly organized and showed up. Uh, very You're talking about America now in the 60s. Yes, yeah, yeah uh, 1968 specifically, all that changed. But it was true everywhere. I mean, it was right. true. I mean, the Red Guards in, in China were organized. These were not spontaneous groups that just kind of decided to do, you know, let's go have uh, a protest. No. These were essentially revolutionary groups were little mock versions of the status quo. There were little hierarchies who were sitting there trying to occupy the space that the big institutions were occupying. So, and, and that had been the way all the way back. I mean, if you look at certainly the Bolsheviks, uh, I was just, the same thing. I was just yeah. going there, yeah. People like to think it was a mass yeah. uh, uprising. No. It was a coordinated uprising yeah. by a small group of very skilled Revolutionaries who who were coordinated coordinated among themselves, but some did manage to get the crowds out. Absolutely. Um, I, I want to talk about Israel for a minute because I I know a little bit about it, and I think it tells us something about the United States today, or at least want your reaction to it. the The Israeli protest was uh, provoked initially by high housing prices. Uh, it's hard for Americans, I think, to understand. Israel, because first of all, it's physically very small. Yes, its um, population is quite small. It's about seven million people right now. Um, there are two major cities, Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. They have very different character. If, totally. you're, if you're a young person, unmarried, not religious, uh, you, you, have, you want to live in Tel Aviv. And housing prices, rental rates for apartments were very high there. That's the nominal cause of this movement. Now, as an economist, I step back and I say, well, <clears throat> the Israeli government owns a huge portion of the land in the state of Israel. Uh, they regulate it with incredible restrictions that makes it really hard to build things. And so you get high housing rates. And the response, which you mentioned in, in your book of how the Israeli government responded, was a, um, a study. A committee was put together. A study was came forward. And the result was, oh, we need to subsidize housing for maybe lower income people or whatever – which, of course, drives up the price of housing even further. Uh, I, it also should be mentioned that Israel is a thriving economy, enormous amount of opportunity there relative to its neighbors, enormous opportunity relative to what it was 20 years before. I mention that because we're here in the United States. Uh, unemployment is 3.5%. Uh, incomes have been rising. You can debate whether they're how much of it's been gained by people with at the top versus the middle. I don't think there's any doubt that, that the gains in the middle are, are not zero. You can debate whether they're large enough. And yet somehow we have a uh, reaction to that that is like to me, like the Tel Aviv reaction, a little bit out of line with the underlying facts. Uh, there was a, a study, uh, done a study, well, it was a survey by Gallup uh, on uh, – Recently, and something like 90% of Americans are content with their situation. This was viewed by Twitter. Uh, Noah Smith posted on Twitter. This yeah. was viewed, this, you know, mildly left of center. Yeah, I know. So his, the people follow him and who saw that said, well, this obviously couldn't be true. We know, you know, some people say, well, 10% of 330 million is 33 million unhappy <laughs> people. But it was just way too high for most people because there's a feeling of malaise and and disillusionment and alienation that seems immense. And I'm sure it felt that way in Israel at the time. It feels that way here. It doesn't seem to be consistent with, quote, the facts. What's going on there? Well, that's a really good question. And you can probe that, that uh, wound, I guess you would call it, in many different ways. 
I'm sorry to tell you my my take on what you have just said is something that I, I have actually argued for, which is whatever that malaise is, it's not economic. It's not economic. Israel was booming when those protests hit. Um, Chile uh, spent, I mean, they have had these vicious, vandalistic protests, burned down like, I think, $1 billion at least worth of damages. Uh, and the spark was they had increased um, uh, trans- mass transit fare by 30 pesos, which is about 4%. And what they say, you know, the protesters says it's not about the 30 pesos, it's about the 30 years, meaning 30 years previous. In the 30 years previous to those riots, Chile had gone from a dictatorial poor country to a democratic, the most affluent country in Latin America. So my my take, and we can get into that a little deeper if you want, is that whatever this is, some places might have some economic flavoring to it. The yellow jackets in France belong to a certain class, you could, you know, and they feel like they're not being treated uh, right. But even with them, it's not primarily about economics. There's a big theme of um, nihilism, nihilism in your book. I want to expand on that. And, and that, that is not obviously economic. Um, what do you have in mind? Well, I mean, if you are the public and you have this sense, and to me, uh, if I would say, what is it? You take all these protests and I've studied them all and you have to go read what they say because the elites do want it to be economic. And they want it to be sort of like socioeconomic. So there's a lot of you know, people, white people who feel like they're being left behind and, and, and all of that. But if you will listen to what the actual protesters say, they are very unhappy. They're very angry about the distance between themselves and the elites. And they feel like the elites have failed. And they feel like um, that failure has nothing to do with incompetence. It has to do with corruption. They, they, these are people who are self-serving and feathering their own nests. So they fail me, not because they're trying and failing. They fail me because I don't care. They're really at, at, uh, uh, being elected. They're my neighbors when I elect them. They look just like me. And suddenly they go to the top of the pyramid. They dress different. They become Harvey Weinstein in some horrible way. Um, so uh, let me just finish here. So as the public organizes, and as I said before, it can't organize uh, – with an organization, it can't organize around an ideology or a program. It just organizes in being against these things. Um, there comes a point where you either have to transact with reality or you decide, well, the, the established order is so corrupt that destroying it is, is progress. It's a step forward. Uh, and I think many people have gotten crossed over that line. Uh, and that's what I call nihilism, the idea that destruction and sometimes even violence uh, is a form of progress. Yeah, a friend of mine who's uh, one of the smartest people I know said that he was voting for Trump because he's going to destroy everything. And I thought, wow, the historical track record of that is not good. <laughs> uh, that what replaces it is often... Uh, not attractive. Certainly Brexit has some of this flavor. Uh, you know, the elites in uh, in responding to Brexit said things like, it's going to lower growth, but, you know, whatever. And I thought, boy, that is misunderstanding, I think, what's fundamentally going on. And I think you're right that there is a natural 
tendency to look at pocketbook issues as the sort of driving force. It's, you can't ignore them. But what's striking to me is at a time of incredible wealth, and again, you can debate whether how widely it's shared and the role of inequality, but I, I think there's a sense, what I take from your book and what I also uh, sense more generally is there's a sense of betrayal uh, that the public feels from the elites. Uh, and, and that, it's, and I love what you say. It's not, and therefore give me this. It's therefore you've got to go. And I don't, and they don't, we, they, I don't know who we are, the public, doesn't seem to, the players don't seem to care so much about what will replace it. And as you point out, they certainly don't have a program to replace it. They just want, they just want something different. And that's such a strange uh, situation for a democracy, it seems to me, to be in. Uh, it doesn't bode well for the future. The public uh, won't take yes for an answer. I mean, that, that's one of the really strange things about this, this development. In Israel that we were talking about, they formed that commission. Uh, that Netanyahu, give the man credit, of all the... Um, uh, besieged yeah, leaders. Besieged <laughs> presidents and prime ministers. At some, because these things erupt out of nowhere. I mean, nobody has sense that they're coming. And it literally is within a few days, you have a million people in the street, and the elites are asking, what the heck is this? Um, well, his reaction was, let's form that committee, and let's go talk to them. Well, of course, the... Um, them meaning the, the protesters. protesters. Yeah. yeah. So the protesters was, like, well, who is them? They have no, no leaders. They have no spokespersons. So then they, the, the, the protesters were divided between those who said, no, 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 no. We don't even talk to the government. We just want to, you know, change the system. Um, in some completely unspecified way that brings about social justice. There was a lot of talk about social justice, never specified. I mean, social justice meant that the people who had apartments in Tel Aviv could work closer, could live closer to where they worked. Uh, that was as far as I could tell. This was the affluent class, by the way. This, this is the Ashkenazi right. affluent class. It was the golden, the golden youth of Israel was in revolt because their apartments cost too much money. Okay, it did not include, and that's another feature of this, of these revolts. They do not include marginalized people. They do not include uh, uh, minorities. If you looked at um, Occupy, there was hardly any uh, minorities, uh, minorities in that. They tend to be um, very middle class, uh, very main, whatever the ethnicity is that you're talking about. It, um, in, uh, in Egypt, in Tahrir Square, it was the educated, it was the golden youth, the educated uh, young people of Egypt who had been connected through the, the web. There was just enough connection in Egypt, you could put a few hundred thousand people on the street. Um, these were not the, uh, the, the poor, the downtrodden. Uh, so in Israel, they went to them and said, what do you want? And they said, <clears throat> essentially, I don't want to talk to you. Or they talked to them, just half of them talked to them. And then whatever they came up with said, no, I don't agree with that. You, you still corrupt. Dealing is there. They, they have what I, t- uh, I describe as a sectarian approach to politics. Sects are very pure, very virtue-oriented, and dealing with uh, the great world out there is somehow sinful. The center is sinful, and I, in my border sect, uh, am a pure person. And that is invariably what you find. They cannot take yes for an answer. The yellow jackets in France, everything they have asked for, they've gotten, and then a whole bunch of other stuff, okay? And they're still out there. They're still out there. Uh, You you talk about in the book the difference between the center, which is sort of the hierarchical Mm top-down group versus the border, the people on the edge who are 
<clears throat> emergent different groups rise up at different times with you know different flavors and but no one's in charge of them obviously i'm reminded as i have been in the past on here uh on the program about uh, yates's poem the second coming mm-hmm. you know the center cannot hold you're a avowed pro-democracy person yes um are you worried about the future of democracy? Uh, let's start with the United States or in the West more generally. It seems to me at, at risk. Yeah, I actually have probably overdone Yates in my writings. <laughs> I mean, I, at some point I should shut up with Yates. Um, my answer to your question is not yet. I I've, I feel that the there there's a fairly obvious way i mean we changed in the 20th century from essentially an 18th century democracy to an industrial age democracy that happened yeah an agrarian yeah. economy much more rural right. we became a industrial urban place and all the hierarchies that we're now talking about are are falling apart and losing authority were at that moment adapted to that particular social and political environment very neatly, I think. Um, so it is not an impossibility that we can uh, reform our system. I am a reform freak. Uh, I'm not a revolutionary. I think there point to me a revolution that uh, did any good. Uh, the American Revolution wasn't really a revolution in my book. Um, so, but reform, I think, is is. Um, would mean flattening the pyramid. We now can do that. Country, a tiny little country. Explain. Yeah. Um, what do you mean by flattening the well, pyramid? Well, okay. How many layers, Russ, are there between you and the President of the United States of America? I mean, I worked in that hierarchy, and I have no idea. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's a lot of them. It's hundreds yeah. of layers. Do we really need every one of those? Do they all serve a productive function? Do they really sustain an edifice that is the best we can have? given their situation today? And I think the answer is no. I think that's what, when people look at the government, um, they don't see the, uh, the government. They see the layers, the layers of, of bureaucracy between them and the people who actually decide things. Well, I think a, a lot of those can go, and I think the Internet can help. And I think if you look at a little country like Estonia that has essentially um, uh, digitized many, many of its uh, government functions, uh, and gotten rid, therefore, of a lot of its bureaucracy. That's one way you can go. Um, I think, though, um, there needs to be something more fundamental than that, or, or uh, let's say less structural than that. And that gets back to, to the Yuval Levin point, which is there is something broken with our elites today. They, there, is, there is a... Uh, this is almost, almost wanders into a... a uh, an area which I find very tricky, which is morality. All right, it's, but in the end, politics is, is is determined by morality, by what we think is right and wrong. And I think our elites, and I have I thought about this very carefully. Uh, the, our current elite class is broken. It's just broken. These they, they have lost a sense of what it means to be an elite, which is you give up a lot more than you get. You get. You know, Go back and see how happy George Washington was to go back to the farm. It was like the happiest thing that happened to him. He could now do whatever the heck he wanted to. When he was president, every moment of every day he had to kind of calibrate, how should I behave in a way that is responsible and and fitting for my office, right? Uh, Well, nobody thinks that way anymore. And I think, 
maybe we don't want George Washington anymore. We have, you know, white periwigs have gone out of style, and maybe that serious uh, um, institutional model is not what we would use, but some equivalent of that. And that, that just needs, it just means we need new people. We need new people. Have you seen The Crown? You could not pay me money to see that book, the movie. So uh, I would have thought myself in that group as well, <laughs> and yet I have uh, watched all oh. three seasons that have released so far. I have no interest oh. in the British royalty, right. and yet I have enjoyed it immensely for a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, it's beautifully done, and the dialogue's superb, and the acting's tremendous, and the production values are off the chart. I mean, it's an unbelievable achievement. But I think one of the reasons, um, th- there's two reasons it goes beyond gossip, although it may struggle in the next set of seasons to do that. But the one reason it goes beyond gossip is that, first, it's about the diminishing of Britain's power in the world and the fact that the crown has to confront that alongside the secular, the, the politicians. But the other part of the show you've really hit on, which I think is quite um, important, which is the crown's a responsibility. It's not a it's a it's a privilege and a responsibility. It's not a uh, prize. It's not like, oh, I wish I could be that person. It comes with tremendous restrictions uh, of duty and responsibility, and, and those require trade-offs that not everybody is comfortable making, and people have left yes. the royalty in different ways or yes. tried to. We know about that. Um, but I think your point that, that elite status had to be earned through sacrifice has died. Now, you suggest we need to get better people. I think that's unlikely. Um, it seems to me we need better incentives. Um, I don't know how we get there from here. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, how are well, these institutions going to be rebuilt? How are we going I think, to I think regain something like better that? Better people, that, that's, you know, like marrying somebody and hoping they change, yeah. you know? That's not going to happen. Okay. Um, different. So what do you mean? Okay. Oh, different. Different. Okay. And I think different in the sense of, because there are, there are um, there are two elements, I would say, to what I, I guess you would call the the elite um, breakdown. One of them is obviously in behavior, and honestly, you should know if you're if you're going to be in a position of great visibility that whatever you do is gonna come out. It's just going to come out. Nothing stays behind closed walls anymore. So behave in a way as if everybody was watching you, no matter what you're doing, even in your bedroom. So uh, that's number one. Number two is the rhetoric. The rhetoric of the elites today is really something. It is really something. For a Hillary Clinton to say that half of Trump voters are deplorable people in, in a kind of a abominable way, racist and so forth. That, uh, for a politician to say that, that's a, that's a remarkable thing. Well, in France, when they had the, um, the yellow vest, one of the, the, basically the top parliamentarian for the ruling party said, the problem is our, our um, policies are too sophisticated. They said, and people don't understand them. So this is the sense that, you know, you're dealing with these yahoos out there who are completely uh, ignorant of, of your expertise and scientific training. And, and so I think when I talk about different, people who have been raised on the web talk different. They don't talk that way, all right? There is, there is an awareness because when you only say that when you know you're not, you're not going to be looking at a, uh, um, a deplorable in the eye 
and say, by the way, you are deplorable. People who have been raised on the web know that they're looking at their audience in the eye and that the audience is going to explode right back at you if you use the wrong kind of rhetoric. Yeah, I, I don't agree with that. I, I think actually it might go the other way. I think there's a willingness on the part of the media, political leaders to use talk call their the other side deplorable more more readily because it signals virtue to their followers. I, I feel like we've become uh, on the left and the right, increasingly disrespectful of people who don't think the way we do. I see that on both sides, and I see the web amplifying that tremendously. Now, part of the way it does that is through anonymity, right? The, the ability on the web, at least in theory, to be anonymous uh, is part of that. But there are plenty of people I follow on the web who have named accounts on Twitter who say things that, that are just disrespectful of people on the other side, on the left and the right, and I think a democracy can't handle that very well. Um, I think about uh, Sebastian Junger's book, Tribe, which we we talked about on this program, and how um, if it's all us and them, you, you, uh, the way he said it, which I think is spectacular, is if, if you think that the other side is betraying your country, which I think right now is the world we're in, both – it's not just in America. It's in, it's in England. It's in all over the world – if you think your your political opponent is betraying the nation, you're essentially accusing them of treason, which historically has merited the death penalty. And a lot of people, I think, are increasingly comfortable with the fact that they don't deserve a voice. I don't know how democracy sustains itself in that environment. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I mean, you're asking me how it uh, can change, and I'm pointing to some possibilities. The incentives are in the other direction. Um, and, and, um, and I would add another layer to that even, which is uh, well, a couple of layers. One is that in the Internet, if you're a moderate, who's going to pay attention yeah. to you? You need to shout. Yeah. And the angrier your shout is, uh, the, the more pronounced your, your, your uh, profile. And, um, and the more you can find somebody on the other side who shouts back at you, engage in these kind of like, you know, we have kind of – I don't believe in right and left right now. I don't believe in Republican and Democrat. I think we're fractured. We're fractured in these these little war bands. And they're like something out of the barbarian age where they go looking for, you know, combat that, that, that will earn them undying fame, which, of course, in the digital age is more like, you know, brief attention, right? That's, that's the equivalent. Um, but um, the incentives are all for that. No question about that. And the second part is our society has changed very drastically, uh, so that a lot of um, importance, a lot of existential meaning is, is freighted down on politics, okay? Uh, religion seems to be, you know, less of a thing. Um, locality and community, less of a thing. Even family, when you think about it, 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 it is it's way <laughs> less of a thing. These are the things that we used to get our meaning from. So I think when you find, um, when you find uh, these, these eruptions of powerful emotions, um, I think Arnold Kling says one thing the web has done is um, broken down the distance between the small world we live in and the big world that we don't really see. It's in the small world that all our powerful emotions are linked to, our significant others, our families, our religion, our community. Now we're, we're focusing all of that on, on politics, and if in, in that mode you find somebody who you, you disagree with, 
It's not just, well, you go your way and I'll go mine. It's like you are kind of violating the principles of my religion now. Yeah, I think that's very true, and or at least I'm drawn to that. I don't know if it's very true or not. It's hard to know whether it's true. It's a nice narrative. Um, yeah, it, I've actually, I've been trying to that, – that is – I agree with you 100%. I can't prove it. It is one of those things that, that existential side to the revolt of the public is something that if, if you can think of a way to prove that, because I've been rooting around in my research, uh, but that is what seems to be happening. What is true is what you said to start with. All of these previous institutions are fraying. The family is clearly fraying, the traditional family, whatever you want to call it. Um, many, many fewer young people are getting married. Fewer yep. people are staying married. They're, at having any point children. in time, there are fewer married people. They're having fewer children. Uh, church attendance is down. Uh, now, there may be a pendulum. Both those things may yeah. come back. But right now, we're at a time where, the, as you point out, the things that traditionally gave people meaning, a uh, sense of self, whatever you want to call it, tradition, are uh, not what they once were. And I'm drawn deeply to David Foster Wallace's observation that everybody worships. His uh, glorious um, graduation commencement address speech, which uh, we'll link to, where he says, uh, everyone worships. So worship something that stood the test of time. He says, if you worship money, it'll, it will betray you. If you worship beauty, it will betray you. Uh, worship a higher, something higher than yourself, not yourself. And that's a deep insight. I think to some extent, uh, politics is something higher than ourselves. I think people aspire to a, a transformation, a utopian transformation, a messianic transformation uh, through the political sphere that they used to use the religious sphere to, to satisfy. But that's just cheap talk. I, I want to take a different approach that you take in the book get your, to expand on, which is uh, something I found myself um, being drawn to. And, you know, listeners know I'm religious, but in addition to that, I also feel, besides that withdrawal from the I, politics, not my religion, so it's a better way to say it. <laughs> At the same time, you know, after I wrote my book on Adam Smith, uh, which I think came out in 2014, if I remember correctly, which is in the middle of this this unmooring of yes. the world turned upside down. I, I used to joke with friends, I'd say, you know, I think I, I feel like going back to 1759. I, I really enjoyed it there, uh, hanging out with Adam Smith and the theory of moral sentiments. And you write the following, you say, the most effective alternative to the steep pyramid of industrialized democracy isn't direct democracy on the Athenian model or, or cyber democracy in the style of what El Hanim's Facebook page. He was a, a Egyptian, if I remember right, right? right. Um, mobilizer. You continue. It's the personal sphere, the place where information and decisions move along the shortest causal links to the extent the choices are returned to the personal from the political. They can be disposed directly in the light of local knowledge as part of an observable series of trial and error. Personal success can be emulated and replicated. Personal failure will not implicate the entire system. Uh, that certainly echoes uh, Nassim Taleb's view about scaling. We've overscaled yes. democracy. We've got to move to something more like, like Switzerland. But it also has a, a unfortunate or not, an to the eyes of many, a, a sense of abdication. Uh, I, I really do want to sit under my fig tree, like George Washington uh, wanted to do, and and cultivate the people closest to me and be a good soul and be kind and loving and patient and, and less egotistical. Uh, most people find that unsatisfying. They want something grander. They, they want to 
destroy or they want to transform or they want to build, they want to get on the barricades. Do you think there's a potential um, attractiveness to that model that you're espousing? It can be combined with a civil society model where we do help people beyond ourselves through charities, foundations, and other things. But it seems to be very much of not of our time. Our our your you your view and mine, which I share of yours, that, that we should be more personal and less political, is not doesn't seem to be selling very well. Right. I I. It's not just being personal rather than political. I would say what's happening, and this is this is now a statement of fact, and then I will, you know, I, I don't like to weigh myself down with a lot of values because they tend to confuse me. You know, the things that I want to happen versus what I actually I'm seeing. But um, I'll overlay some of that. A statement of fact is we're fracturing. I think the industrial world was one of these gigantic agglomerations of, of humanity. Um, literally hundreds of millions of people were brought into history who had lived these marginal existences that, that nobody had paid attention to. And that was done through these mass systems, uh, which performed very well for their day. Some of them went haywire, like the mass movements, like, for example, you know, the fascists and, and, and the Bolsheviks. But mostly it worked. Um, we had, I think, preceding even the digital era, we had reached maximum aggregation. Probably when the Soviet Union split apart was the moment where suddenly that cohesive, uh, well, you either our side or their side, um, glue was gone and things started to fall apart. But for sure, right now, we're in a moment where um, nations are splintering. So, you know, the, the people are talking about Brexit and the Brits leaving the EU. But you know what? The Scots want Scots to leave. Scots are next. California might be next. California <laughs> is out there. That's exactly right. The California sees itself as an alternate state to a Trump-dominated federal government. Uh, the sanctuary cities believe they're like little city-states who can accept or reject um, federal law, national law. Um, the parties are really just a very loose conglomerates of these war bands, these networks I was talking about before. So I think the reality is we're living in that world. So how do we make that world um, democratic and, and as least um, vicious as we can? And I think it's by empowering, I mean, particularly in the United States, um, a lot of our locality is political. That's uh, in California, for example. So the more you empower localities, uh, the cantons, I, I say somewhere in the book, in one possible future, every democracy is Switzerland. That's not a particularly attractive model to me personally, but it is a, it's a model. And, and, it, and it is, I think, fitting uh, this kind of um, fracturing moment that we happen to be living through that I think we're going to be in. By the way, I think we're in the very early stages of this. We're in the very, very early stages of this. Uh, this is going to outlast me, probably you, um, I don't know, even my children. Uh, this is, uh, when you think about the printing press, for example, and the ripple effect it had, um, I have a friend, um, probably the smartest tweeter in, in, uh, on Twitter, called Antonio Garcia Martinez, who says, um, if you had gone to the 30 Years' War, you know what the 30 Years' War, the most horrendous war that had hit Europe to that point, depopulated Germany for several generations afterwards, all fought over tiny religious differences. 17th century, right? 17th century, yeah. right. 
ends with the um, Treaty of Westphalia, 1648. Yeah. Yep. Okay. yep, yep, yep. Appreciate the compliment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but I, I, want to, I want to trust but verify, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yep. So if you had gone to that conflict where some people are walking around with books that say, well, God the Father is this, and some other people are going with, with books that say, God the Father is something slightly different. I'm going to kill you now, right? Um, and you ask them, what have been the consequences of the printing press? They would have said, it's horrible. It's a, it's a horrible technology. It's caused the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of people. Now, I would like to think, and I've, I've, I've had some pushback on this, but I believe that the printing press was the most liberating technology that ever existed in the long run. No doubt about it. In the long run. We're until, n- until this one, at least. <laughs> well, I mean, right. We're now in the short run of the, of the digital tsunami, okay? And it looks horrible. It looks like the 30 years war, only not nearly that bad, let's put it that way. Yeah, um, so um, it, 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 I feel like we need to take a step back and uh, look at this technology as we're in the beginnings of it. It's going to continue. And it's not, in my opinion, I am not a believer in vast impersonal forces. It's going to be up to us how it ends up. So I've said on the program a little wor- that I'm a little worried about civil war in the United States. Um, and when you say that, you feel like an idiot because, of course, there'll never be a civil war. But things change and things you didn't anticipate happen. And uh, one solution to that, one way to avoid that, which I hadn't really thought enough <laughs> about, is is to – Break up the United States without fighting. Uh, a secession of uh, California, uh, New England, uh, the South, the Midwest, those four, I think of those as sort of four nations that had maybe a free trade zone, uh, we'd be a more peaceful place. Of course, one of the challenges of that kind of solution, besides that it violates what used to be our religion in yes. America, that we were a one nation under God and that yes. the civil war, the actual Civil War of the 19th century was fought to preserve it, which was horrifically uh, bloody. Um, I think about 500,000 people died for that idea. Uh, they weren't dying to fight slavery. That was fortunately a, a positive side effect, which took another 100 years to get right. But um, the problem is is that there's, there's not just, say, the coasts versus the middle – or the South versus the rest. It's urban-rural. There's it, it, there's no easy way to fix this problem, I think, for America. And, and I think the this idea of what we are, which Trump is the manifestation of, not the not the cause. I think he's the manifestation of an unease there. Correct. Not clear how that's going to play out. No. But, okay, now we're talking about something way beyond my expertise, and I'm about to just give you – Speculative opinions. I'll take it. Great. <laughs> okay, as I think I told you earlier, um, I, I myself am an immigrant. I come from Cuba. Um, I don't believe that you could find 100 Californians and put them in a room and say, do you want to not be Americans anymore and just be Californians? I don't believe that's going to happen. I don't believe it's ever going to happen. I do believe you can seed California, the kinds of powers that states and localities used to have before the industrial moment when, when uh, power centralized so um, powerfully or so strongly um, and allow them to have their version of being an American. And maybe here, the rest of us in Virginia will have our, our version of being an American and the Texans will have theirs and the Floridians will have theirs. But in the end, 
there are many threads that mean we're still Americans. I mean, we still have our culture, which is, which is shared. I mean, you have to come from the outside to see the many, many things. That's the sad part is you see the many, many bonds that bring Americans together. Most Americans don't see them. They just don't see them, but they're there. And I don't believe, as I say, that I couldn't prove this if you put a gun to my head, but I don't believe you could find a hundred uh, people in California who would say, I'd rather be a Californian than an American. Well, that's today. After the uh, third Trump administration, they might feel differently. But um, <laughs> us too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There might be a larger group. But um, tell me. Let's close on on. I like that optimism. Uh, is there any reason to think that this disillusionment is where I think of it uh, with institutions yeah. will end in a um, I mean, there's two paths. There's this decentralized path, this this pushing of flattening of the pyramid, the pushing of power down to different levels and layers. The other route is the centralized path, which is historically what has happened. Someone comes along who says, I'm going to fix this mess. Uh, that person's usually charismatic. Uh, the United States, you know, I've always believed until recently that the United States was immune from that kind of um, – that the Constitution would – would 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 hold. I joked about a third Trump administration. Uh, that's of course unimaginable. We've never, you know, we have this beautiful thing in America of the peaceful transition of power. Um, there are a lot of people out in the political sphere today. It's not just Donald Trump, but on the other side as well. Whatever that means, the other side who I think would are not going to easily give up power. There's a there's a that lack of respect is so large. So I just think. I think we're headed into really uncharted waters there, and the institution of U.S. governance is also frayed. So, what are your what are your give me some reasons for being hopeful? Well, I don't if know, you can, I don't know that I'm in that business, but uh, I I think disenchanted is the way I would describe the public's view of government. And if you remember, there was a a moment when nature was disenchanted. Uh, people used to think that it had fairies and that you could. You could um, do spells or prayers and you could influence uh, natural events. And science came and said, no, I'm sorry. That was a very beautiful story. But in fact, none of that happens. And then we could deal with science, with nature, uh, as it really is, right? And okay, that's the way it is. I mean, if you want to have illusions about fairies, you can have them. But, you know, you deal with it the way it is. The same thing has happened to government with that digital tsunami and all the institutions, all of them, the media, the uh, the academia, everything. They have been stripped to the point where the public is disenchanted. All those stories that they could solve uh, joblessness, that they could impose um, uh, economic equality, that all the things that have been claimed, uh, uh, we now see... They don't know how to do any any of these things. There's a disenchantment. What we need, again, I go back to my new um, elite class that we need. We need a, an elite class that is the equivalent of the scientific class when the first disenchantment happened and says, I can't promise you what is not true. I can, I can say we will try this. I can say we will we'll, we'll do trial and error on, in this direction. And that's my policy. But if it goes wrong, we'll fix it versus some global... I, I can I can promise you paradise. Elect me and a pony. 
and a, po- <laughs> a paradise and a pony. And by the way, I'm going to make your life meaningful yeah. because you will be part part of this this um, semi cultish thing. Um, so, I I think there is. I have hope. I mean, the, the next generation, which is my children's generation, I I have questions about. But in the end, reality imposes itself. It's nice to be young, but in the end, you have to be realistic. Um, and and I think there is a way of being a politician and getting getting votes where you are. A, addressing a disenchanted audience. And you're doing so by being humble and by being honest. So I guess go back to morality, right? Uh, you're, you're, you're telling people we can start to do this, but in fact, we don't really know how to get there 100%. So it's going to be a twist and a turn because that's the way everything human ever goes. So that would be my, my little speech. Well, usually I'd end there, but I, I can't resist quoting a beautiful line from your book, and I'll let you react to this, and then we'll close. You say... Politics is nothing like baseball. In the end, the most persuasive story wins, not the highest score. How do you reconcile that with what you just said? Yeah. Like, I love that love that yeah. that insight. It's a fantastic – it goes against everything I used to believe about public choice and politics, but I think you're right. Yeah. Well, I mean – In history. <laughs> pers- persuasion is something that I studied very deeply, both when I was uh, in government and, and afterwards. Persuasion is a tool. I mean – the, the, the persuasive story can be a realistic story or it can be a fantasy story. Um, great, great orators have taken a real situation. You know, you, you go back to Pericles' funeral oration when the Athenians were basically burying their, their best young people during a plague and a war. Uh, and he made it all seem worthwhile. He persuaded. I mean, that that oration has lived to this day because it was. He showed how democracy, even at a terrible moment, made all those sacrifices worthwhile. There are people who can do this. They can persuade us without necessarily violating reality or promising promising a pony or or who knows what else, right? Um, and I'm not persuaded that. In a digital age, for sure, after we get past this horrible 30 years war moment, when both, right now, the elites are not digital. The elites are still living in the 20th century. They desperately want to get back there, okay? I mean, they are stuck in the muck of reaction. And the rest of us are in the digital age. At some point, just generationally, that's going to change. And you're going to have both elites and the public in the digital age. And not to say that that will be utopia. (laughs) Because it most certainly will not be, but I think then you get to the point where the people who are who are trying to persuade are aware that at any moment anything they say that is not true is going to be the lead on the web. It's going to be the viral thing that goes on the web. So you got to say this is reality and this is what I'm going to do and this is what I think can happen. It's not necessarily what will happen. I don't ever make predictions. I do not. I, I worked for CIA, and that was a, prophecy was their business model, and we don't even want to go there. But um, but it can happen. So I, I am always short-term pessimistic, uh, long-term optimistic. My guest today has been Martin Gurry. His book is The Revolt of the Public. Martin, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Hey, this was fun. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. 
The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.